when you hear EDI now, you'll probably think Black, Asian, minority, ethnic, LGBTQ, disability, health. Actually, diversity is not a group of people. It's a way of thinking and broadening your perspective on life. That's a cultural change. And inclusion is having a happy, healthy, engaged workforce, no matter who they are, where they come from, that feel part of your organization and feel empowered to be their authentic selves in work. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day. Tune in to discover what it takes to truly develop within human resources as we delve deep into growth, engagement and leadership strategies that will help you unlock the hidden potential within your business. By listening to this podcast, we hope to empower you and your workforce towards achieving significant HR organisational success. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, founder of JGA Recruitment. And today I am joined by Woosh Raza, senior HR leader, someone who is incredibly passionate about equality, diversity and inclusion, an expert in developing strategic people plans that align with organisational goals and leading high performance HR teams. Woosh is currently the head of HR and L&D at a brilliant charity called Phoenix Futures, Phoenix is a charity committed to supporting those who suffer from alcohol addiction or substance abuse, and the charity is well recognised in the sector. Now, Woosh has worked in senior HR roles for over a decade in the remit of generalist and as a leader of HR teams. So without further ado, let me welcome you all to Woosh Raza, an incredibly energetic, passionate and charismatic HR leader to the HR L&D podcast. Enjoy. Five quick questions. Understanding where we are to know where we are going. Thanks for that intro, uh, Nick. I uh, hope I meet that benchmark in terms of energy, and uh, and, and I have uh, you know broken my podcast virginity this afternoon, which is always a uh, which is always good. Um, so yeah, my okay. So where do I? So uh, I I currently head up HR and learning and development for a brilliant brilliant little charity. Uh, called Phoenix Futures. Um, been with them not 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 that long, but um, really really getting immersed in the culture, um, and we've got some really exciting and ambitious plans. In fact, our CEO um, is speaking at the UK Drug Summit uh, this week. I think this week she's in Scotland to speak to the Scottish Drug Summit as well. Very very passionate campaigner about the stigma involved in those suffering and addiction. Uh, may be alcohol and substance abuse so we're a charity that provides support to people that have got a, an addiction um an alcohol addiction substance abuse um and so that's kind of what i do at the moment i love working for the third sector i think there's a lot that hr can really do to add value uh, in in that sector not that, that, that not that i'm taking away from the other sectors but it's a personal sense of fulfillment that i say i must have um since starting kind of work my career in the third sector um i started my career oh god like uh, like most HR professionals will probably say, you, I stumbled into HR. Um, I hate to admit that now because I love it so much. So when people go, how did you start? And I, don't, I haven't got the whole, you know, I've been wanting to do it. It's been on my poster, since, you know, my bedroom since I was three. It's definitely not one of those. Um, basically started within the banking sector. Um, and I guess that was my first exposure on regulatory uh, and compliance risks uh, and it was about the time of the Lehman Brothers crash so we went from being super super cool with all of our mortgage advisors and kind of you know bankers doing x y and z to enforcing a level of regulation very very quickly and being part of HR was a really interesting for me my first stint to really see um, what happens in the in the face of increasing regulation in the world of work and and how HR play a role in, in that in terms of policy and procedures um, and I did that for a while before, before I moved into healthcare um, moved into healthcare because I just love working more with um, health and well-being is, is, is something I'm really really super passionate about um, so I I really wanted to kind of see another regulated environment because it is um, but more working with people hands-on um, so I started my career so developed in, within the NHS I moved on to Fiery um, group which is a, a private mental health provider did some great work there. Um, and then more recently, I've then developed very senior HR roles. Uh, so kind of uh, reporting into kind of board level um, and being responsible for a bigger chunk of people strategy um, and leading uh, quite large teams um, as my career has progressed. Um, and that's been largely in the social care and health and social sector. So 
kind of moving away from hospitals and then looking at communities um, and how we support people in the communities, actually. So we know there's a huge amount that we can do within our own communities that can stop people from needing emergency treatment, whether that's A&E, whether that's suicide, whether that's learning disabilities. We know how much more we can invest in our social care in the, in, in the communities to take away the pressures that the NHS has um, at this moment in time. And so that, again, you know, that, again, um, spurred my interest in communities as a wider concept and equality and diversity um and yeah that's what's brought me to your lovely podcast this afternoon um that's kind of a flavor of, of who i am what's important to me i I, sh I should add you know i identify as being gay um quite loud actually <laughs> um and <laughs> quite you, you'll you'll know um, I do have a flamboyant nature in the sense that I'm really passionate about bringing my energy and my personality into the world of ED&I. I'm also Pakistan. Well, my mum and dad are from Pakistan. And for me, that's really another really important part of my identity, who I am. Um, and so a specific area of ED&I that I'm particularly, I would say, interested in and developing expertise in is intersectionality so where people have potentially more than one area you know that is what you would call a protective characteristic so whether that's you know being lgbt and a person of color or having a disability and being a woman you know looking at those intersectional identities and how that adds a level of like a dimension to the life <laughs> I, I think it's equally as important i don't you may not um, realize this uh, Rush, but actually you're one of the first sort of HR senior HR professionals I've had on the HRMB podcast because typically I've tried to locate uh, people that I interview who influence the sector from outside. So, you know, there are many, many other podcasts that speak to HR directors and HR managers on a regular basis. And I didn't want to saturate that by adding another podcast that does the same thing. So I've really tried to find talkers that can have expertise that can influence the way HR moves and, and can assist with some of the challenges they face. But actually, your passion for what is really a challenging area of HR and L&D teams face at the moment, which is addressing equality, diversity and inclusion. I thought, you know what, you've got so much passion and experience and expertise to share with the HR professionals that do listen to this. that I really wanted to tap into that, to, to that knowledge. So I guess if you don't mind me starting there, really, is because of that passion, what do you think businesses can do about addressing the challenges that HR teams and learning and development teams are facing at the moment when it comes to addressing ED&I issues? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and I think the answer, and this isn't a cop-out, I do think I've done ED&I work, tailored specific work for different organisations at different scales. And the strategy that I end up coming out with or the work plan that we agree on or the objectives, actually, the broader goals and do really vary once you get a really good conversation going. So I think number one challenge for me, right, is... Um, Yes, it's a hot topic. Yes, we're all talking EDI. Yes, we're woke, as we like to say in in these issues. And you know, there's a global attention to these issues that is that is accelerating the conversation at a pace that um, is exciting, but also quite nerve wracking at the same time because we're moving forward quite quickly with a lot of these issues. I mean, Harvey Weinstein this week and the you know the verdict on that and and, and actually what that represents. So that the global issues are impacting the EDI conversation in work and I think we're, it can be really easy to detach from it and treat it as a clinical agenda item um, and that's the first thing I would say if you can try and avoid starting your EDI conversation with that really detached mindset then that's a good thing um, because actually what EDI is and we we in HR we try and pride ourselves on removing biases and removing discrimination and, and equality acts so we've got a we've got a procedural approach in how we attack issues but edni does not and will never work with a procedural approach i think the first starting point and the challenges that i think i've seen is how do you start a really sensitive conversation about what is going on in your business about who works for your business about what kind of cultures and behaviours that you are seeing, whether that's your business data or whether that's seeing it quite physically in the working environment, how do you bring that to a group of people? Because you will need to bring it to your executive or your senior level teams that are possibly very patriotic about their organisations, that are very uh, proud of the organisations and the work that they do. Because as with any difficult conversation, to start the, to, to have a meaningful conversation, you need to be quite honest. So how do you bring that transparency and honesty in 
um, to start the focal point on what can we do to build a more inclusive culture. And uh, where I've, do you see what I mean? And I think with what I've noticed, and this has been when I've been new to this sphere, is I had the energy and the excitement, the passion, but I found that found myself like freezing up when exact, you know, when directors would say, well, we don't have an issue. Well, you know, we've got loads of black people in the business. So we've got, you know, we've got the pride. We've, we, we put our pride floats out for, for uh, London Pride every year. You know, there, there isn't an issue. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to recoil. I think there needs to be a level of, you know, trust that actually we need to be a little bit more vulnerable as organ as an organization to be able to have that conversation about what we can do to further the conversation. Do you think so that defensible fear, if you like, comes from businesses actually knowing really that they're not doing enough? Do you think or do you think it's more to do with the fact that they're just fearful about even bringing the conversation to the table for fear of retribution or for fear of getting something wrong? Or do you think it's a combination of both of those things? Or is there other other elements at play as well? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's a mixture. I, I, I've experienced, I think that, I think, I think there is a sense of anxiety, yeah, at, into the world of the unknown. So this is not a well-rehearsed, well-researched, I mean, there's a ton of research on EDI, but in the grand scheme of business priorities this is something that's emerging as a business as a key area of business priority um and i think sometimes when people don't know well-trodden paths on how to address a problem it can create a level of defensiveness because you you, you know you're not quite sure where the end goal is going to be um and i think that sometimes prohibits people from thinking well if i speak up and i don't know enough about it or you know i'm a director i should know about this so sometimes that is sometimes where the conversation stops um, and I think in other times it is good intentions. I mean, I will say, you know, I've worked with a range of CEOs on this issue and, and chief operating officers and various other directors. And some of them have got the most positive intentions. Um, and it sometimes can get translated into potentially um, quite uncomfortable dialogue in the sense that they want to say the right thing, they want to do the right thing, but they're, they're, they're not quite sure how to, start that conversation um or or to, to to work through it yeah so i think it is a mixture of differences that prohibit people from having a, a, what i would call an honest dialogue on it do you think some of that fear as well comes from the disproportionate um kind of boards that we have at the moment so if I, i'll use myself as an example i mean you you kindly invited me onto a panel to talk about these issues i was the only white caucasian <laughs> me, you know, middle-aged male on the panel and, and i had some of that fear i mean i was definitely fearful of saying the wrong thing i was obviously aware that you know i was the only white caucasian male on that panel and i, and I was the minority on that panel in terms of representing the white caucasian males in the group right so there was a f- there was a fear for me. I mean, you have to confront the fear because we're trying to move forward. And if you, you know, if I turned down that invitation because of fear, then we wouldn't, it doesn't progress, doesn't progress what we're all trying to do as a collective, which is really promote equality, diversity and inclusion. But do you think it's because a lot of boards are made up of predominantly Caucasian, you know, white middle-aged males? Do you think that's part of the problem? I, I do. Absolutely do. I think there's two parts to what you've said. I absolutely agree. And thank you for being our white male representative in that <laughs> conversation. Um, because what you so brilliantly did, and you did do this brilliantly, is that you recognise your your privilege uh, in, the, in the fact that you, you know, we, so this is really interesting. I'm talking about this recently now on an article that I'm writing for, for, for a magazine, which is... Um, you know, equal equality act and equal treatment. The, the philosophy has been treat how you would, um, everyone needs to be treated fairly. But actually, if you're born into a societal structure where certain characteristics are given an advantage against others, then fair treatment isn't necessarily the answer to address the imbalance. And I think it's, rec- and I recognise my own privilege, although I haven't had a lot of privilege, you know, being a person of colour and being LGBT, I definitely, you know, in both of the circles, both Asian and in the, even within the gay community, actually, the, the, the racism I experienced in, in that community in particular, um, ha- but but actually, as a man, I recognise I have certain privileges, specifically in the world of work, I think, in terms of the way that, you know, maternity is treated, example, as opposed to women. So I think the first part of that question is, is recognising privilege. And we know that board representation is not where it needs to be. Um, we've seen this year that we've seen a 7.4% decrease in people of colour at board level, which is shocking, um, given, you know, people, we've been having this conversation for however many years now. Um, 
So there is that to play. There, I think groupthink is what, what can happen, which is too many of the same type of people at decision-making level, rightly or wrongly, coming up with ideas to ta- address the issue. And they may not necessarily be the right ideas for the workforce because they're not including a diverse range of voices in the conversation. I think the other part to that is the white male. Uh, I think some activists, some really passionate ac- activists or in the conversation, somehow the white man has been branded as kind of the, the um, you know, the, the root cause of all diversity and inclusion issues in terms of societal structures and makeups and privilege. But actually, they white men in particular need to be part of the conversation. And I don't want to just limit it to white men. What I think that diversity inclusion is a concept. It's a way of thinking. It is thinking that, okay, I have my own biases. I have my own views. I have my own life experiences, but they may not be, might not be the same as someone else. Whoever that someone else is, it just needs to be someone who is not representative of you or who is not similar to you and by that definition everyone is everyone is everyone should be involved in diversity equality and inclusion but what we're doing now is the diversity fatigue issue which is people hearing especially white men hearing equality and diversity initiatives at work or when they're in when they're in work you know meetings etc and then feeling alienated from that conversation um, that's not going to do any justice to progressing the agenda because the conversation needs to involve everyone. So there's that, which is the psycho-social element and the, the, the I guess the, the, the conceptual element of diversity and who that includes and why it's important to everyone, regardless of what, who you are, what privilege you may or may not have. The other side of that is, yeah, board representation, absolutely. And you, you, I mean, groupthink is the same. If I get together with a group of gay Asian men and start talking about how to develop maternity policies in the workplace, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be completely off the mark with what women in that workplace want. So I think there is a level of absolutely needs to have representation when decisions are being made around equality, diversity, inclusion. And the best way to do that is to have a representative um, board, you know, Um, and a diverse board. Yeah, I think you've summed that up absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. And without without sort of we can go down a tangent here, which, which there's so much evidence that, that proves that, you know, more diversity leads to better profits and better financial performance for businesses. That really that it's very hard to find a business case, you know, not to follow that angle. So it's it's almost surprising that more businesses aren't taking the approach that you're mentioning. One thing I'd I'd like to just establish, because um, you know, I'm aware that I could be guilty of this here in the way that I lead this conversation, is it's very easy for us to group together equality, diversity and inclusion as being one thing. So I wondered if you could just sort of uh, explain how you perceive the differences are between these three terms. So how would you uh, explain the differences between equality, diversity and inclusion? Because otherwise I'm aware that I might just keep grouping them. And that's not something I necessarily want to do, but it's important also for the context of the conversation. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I must say I fell into the same trap when I first started researching the issue and I was like oh equality diversity inclusion what a great you know what a great terminology and it is it, you know it does cover what what we're trying to talk, talk about um I had a great quote which I'm going to share and I love this quote and it's something that's really taken me far in the work that I do with in the in workplaces and at, at consultancy on this is equality is having a diver is having a seat on the table um diversity is being able to have your voice uh, to be able to to ha- to raise your your voice uh, and raise your 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 issues and inclusion is having that voice heard um and i think that's a great way of summing up the the the, the spectrum across equality diversity inclusion because diversity is a reality right we live in a diverse culture we come across people we haven't probably would never come across you know more now than ever before um because of t- things p- such as emig- immigration and migration um you know air travel and and so we're, we're in contact with people from such different walks of life and different backgrounds and different communities in this point of time as, as mankind now more than we've ever been. So actually, diversity is a reality. You know, we know it's London in particular, very multicultural. Um, and that's the and I think that's another part of the problem when it comes to setting up an EDI strategy. It's not necessarily about attracting diverse people into the organisation, because unless you're doing something so so wrong you're probably going to get a healthy level of applications and if not you need to have a look into the attraction side um but it's then how do you develop an inclusive culture within your 
organization so how does how do you get employee voice amplified across your diverse communities are you recognizing that different people within your workforce have different needs are you talking about them are you challenging discriminatory practice in the you know in the hot in the in the in the, the most robust way possible so that you have a zero um, tolerance approach to, to any level of discrimination are you educating your workforce on those issues so that you grow as, a, as an organization that that's what you would in terms of inclusion and building inclusion that's what's really really important so I think the distinction for me is is you know quality is that we all want to be treated in a way that suits us um, and that is reliant on culture and workplace and, and various other things diversity is by default is a reality that is just the world that we live in and diversity is also a way of thinking i think diversity people completely when you hear ed and i now um you'll probably think black asian minority ethnic lgbtq disability health um actually diversity is not a group of people it's a way of thinking and broadening your perspective on life um and so that so that is what you that's a cultural change and inclusion is having a happy, healthy, engaged workforce, no matter who they are, where they come from, that feel part of your organization and feel empowered to be their authentic selves in work. So that's kind of where I see it. No, I think you've described it. I, I think I preferred your version than the quote at the start. But I'm going to include both. <laughs> One question I'm keen to establish, and I'm, it's, I don't know how this will be perceived, but I'll ask the question. Do you think as a as, as a society we are progressing or regressing? Because if you look at the media around, as you say, you mentioned diversity fatigue earlier. It seems to be everywhere in the, in the press. Everyone's trying to talk about it, whether they're not talking about it in the right way or not, as another mention. But at the same time, um, I mentioned this on a, another podcast I did with uh, with Margaret Oshieng, which is, you know, in the public eye at the moment, yeah, I'm seeing, which I never thought I would see again. I thought, it, you know, I thought... But I hadn't really been experiencing it, but things like racism in football, for example, have been all but, all but eradicated with the Kick It Out campaign. And yet this year in particular, we've seen more examples of racism in, you know, in, in, in the public eye than I probably can, can ever remember. So if you bring those two things together, do you think as a society or and within the workplace that we are progressing or we're regressing? Or is there a bit of both? Yeah, I again really good question um and it is very depressing I, I must say in terms of what we're seeing in terms of some of these um behaviors and uh, incidents that we're seeing across the piece actually but I would say we're I mean I'm a very I'm optimistic that it is a bit of both okay in reality we are progressing on some areas we're regressing on others and I have asked you know again recently when I've been asked about diversity fatigue because I've taken ownership of that terminology on those that are really fighting for equality as opposed to those that are sick of hearing of it, um, is it can get to a point where you think, God, despite all of the lobbying and campaigning and the global attention, you're still getting, like you say, racism happening in, fo- you know, in football. Um, the, my answer to that is we are being heard. That is the first part of this, is for the first time these issues are being, you know, the fact we're seeing reaction in my eyes, is actually a positive because people are reacting to what they're hearing. And that shows that some level of listening is happening globally. Now, whether that is going to mean that through a result of that listening, people are reverting to type or reverting to things that they know well or entrenched ideologies and behaviours, or that they're opening themselves up to thinking about things differently, that is what we're seeing. Because some people are obviously, you know, there's more of an appetite for people. I think what I think organisations are probably taking the lead on what to do, because, you know, EDI, as you and I know, you know, you've got now departments and teams of EDI, you know, you've got an EDI professionals in the workplace, you've got consultancies, you've got conversations happening in the workplace. I think organisations are taking their responsibility on this issue quite seriously. I think what we're also having to be mindful of is when you make change and when you're on the precipice of unprecedented, irreversible change, you will always have the resistance that we're seeing, which is we are dealing with secular, systemic and deep-rooted ways of living, ideologies, whether that's about what the man, you know, between men and women, between people of colour, about race. You know, these are concepts that as a human race, we have had to deal with or, or have established structures that have enabled us for hundreds and hundreds of years. And that will never go without 
a fight, really, for those that hold those ideologies deep-rooted to them. We can see the political climate is not necessarily helping in progressing the agenda because there is obviously a, a lot of dissatisfaction happening across the globe. Um, you've got the rise of fascism, um, you know, with places like China, uh, North Korea. You have presidents in the United States, dare I say it, but actually the views that they hold and the platform they have in able to express those views. Our own country, you know, I'm not getting into the politicals here, but, you know, we have a leader in post who's made some really inflammatory and quite uh, discriminatory comments in, in previous times. So that isn't helping because what that's doing is that's empowering and emboldening a base that feel like this conversation and that this agenda is taking away com the comfort and the reality that they have known for a long, long time. Um, so I think on the flip side, yes, we are regressing because we're seeing people act out. And necessarily that says a lot more about them than it does about the people championing for change. But on the flip side, we are making unprecedented changes in the in the sense that, you know, we've seen some massive milestones being achieved um, on the EDNI agenda in the last few years. Um, so I think I think there's I think there's a, a mixture of things happening. And and now as a society, we are more tuned into this issue and more sensitive to this issue. So we're probably seeing those articles because we have an interest in it, you know, and, and that's also going to show us more of the worst, but also show us more of the best. I think that's a really good synopsis of, of what, what's happening at the moment. And I think um, I think you've covered that 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 brilliantly. Um, so let's bring it back to the to the workplace then. You know, as an HR professional yourself, Luz, what do you think HR leaders can be doing or, or learning development teams can be doing at the moment to really combat the DNI challenges? I mean, you're gonna be you're right at the coal face of this. So what are the sort of day-to-day -day challenges you're seeing from an HR leader's perspective that other leaders listening to this right now are gonna go, yeah, you know, we'll, you know what, we're faced with this at the moment. We're trying to do what we can, but we're hitting X, Y, and Z obstacle in, in making that happen. What are, the, what are those challenges? And are there any solutions or have you been able to find any solutions in terms of being able to break through them? <laughs> uh, solutions, I can definitely share some of my insights. Um... And if others have solutions when hearing this podcast, please do get in touch. Um, I think networking and sharing best practices is, is so key to this and combining our efforts on this matter is massive. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's, firstly, I think the issue of ED&I sitting, is, is sitting in HR, in the HR territory in terms of where it's being allocated as a priority within teams and organisations. Do I agree with that? Mm, I'm not sure. I, I think that, as always, everything that uh, is new or is, involves people or involves change or involves thinking about things differently, um, you know, sometimes these projects are packaged and then moved over to HR. And I love that, for, for, rather selfishly love that, because as a HR professional myself, I get to really lead on that work. Um, but actually, are we better placed in the organisation to be tackling this issue or is it a collaborative approach? And I'd say start from that situation, that situation alone. And the way that I would encourage my other HR leaders is to think who's got the capability, skills and actual genuine interest in the team um, to be able to take this forward. Um, the reason I work with the CIPD on the range of events that we've showcased over the last year around equality and diversity, specifically for HR professionals, is that we are seen as an expert in this field and I'm not necessarily sure we have educated ourselves to the level that we probably need to in order to tackle a really sensitive, complex piece of work such as EDI. So my first question is assess the capabilities and skills within your teams, in the HR teams, to, to see whether this actually fits within HR. And we still have a stigma in HR. So whenever a new initiative comes out in organisations and it's a HR-led inverted commas, uh, strategy or HR-led project, um, that can potentially alienate a lot of people from either not listening in or tuning into it or being involved in the work. So if you have got that kind of a culture where, you know, it's seen as HR-led issue and that potentially that may not give you the traction you're looking for with your workforce, buddy up or get a, a, someone with influence at senior level to potentially champion the cause. Um, one of the things I found that worked really well for me is when I've made it a broader strategic priority than just sitting solely within HR. So I've actually engaged with the director of operations, I've engaged with marketing directors, and I've said it'd be great to have your voices amplify this message. And I know it's because those two directors have got the largest teams in the business. So 
thinking about things a little bit smartly in terms of who's best place to champion that message and how can we get generate the interest across the workforce is probably a really good thing to think about from a beginning perspective. Um, educating the team is really important, you know, developing um, an understanding of what are the issues across equality, diversity and inclusion, what is groupthink, what is, you know, intersectionality in terms of identification. Um, the other, the other thing I think, and, and hearing from different voices and perspectives, and the best and most powerful way that I've seen that been achieved is ask your workforce. You will have someone with lived experience in certain areas, definitely within your workforce, that is tuned into what's happening right now, that would love to contribute their ideas and their experiences. You need to hear from those in your business that work for your business to get an insight into what it is that um, accurately reflects the work that you're trying to do. So do speak to a broad range of stakeholders, I think, and people from diverse backgrounds within your business to understand your culture and understand where you want your strategy to go. Um, what other things can I think about? So I think get okay, the, I guess don't, don't don't be fearful of the response. Absolutely, you know, you're yes. Put it out there to absolutely, ask your workforce, yeah. I and mean, that's probably one reason people don't do it. You that's know, they're really worried that someone will come up and go, "You don't do enough," but actually, you need to have that feedback in order to make change. Absolutely, I, and I found in my experience. If you find the right people, they're not, <laughs> they will tell you um, as it is. But actually, you're right. There are people, like you say, perhaps potentially that where it's not a, um, where it's not a visible uh, diverse, you know, where they're not visibly, where their characteristics aren't visible. For example, it might be their sexuality or another part of themselves who, yeah, like you say, you know, maybe a little needs to be empowered to understand why you're asking them the question. Um, and, and actually, yeah, like you say, recognize that 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 you know being honest and transparent is is really going to benefit the organization um so I do think that that really does help um we're all kind of learning how to talk about this issue. <laughs> I think it's not to take away from that um we're gonna say i mean I've heard some corkers of statements and terminologies that are used by CEOs um and senior level directors on this issue and I'm just like wow okay but actually I have to recognize that it's a conversation that we need to kind of have together um so I think honesty and transparency is absolutely fundamental for HR leaders if you are in a position of trust with your senior directors and your exec then then encourage an honest dialogue um to address what it is and the biggest thing I've seen that I would say steer clear from for HR leaders is do not buy an off-the-shelf or a one-size-fits-all um, approach or product to try and address your your issues. And that almost that almost contradicts what we're trying to achieve, anyway, doesn't it? I mean, there's Absolutely. the whole point yeah, of just... EDNI would yeah, be that yeah, there yeah. isn't a one-stop yeah. solution to the problem. Absolutely. You know? But you'd be surprised how many times I've heard senior people in, in HR go, oh, well, we've got a, a statement now at the end of every advert thing. We're really keen on bringing diversity into the business. And I'm like, okay that you and please tell me your work does not stop there um and you know so that is i think a really key part of it it's just take you're right absolutely it goes against the very philosophy whereby we're trying to instill an individualistic approach um i think the other part is also your data can tell you a lot if you are asking the right questions and if you are collecting your data in the right way so it could be really daunting to start off on this but actually, why don't you start with some basics around your workforce composition? So what is your workforce made up of? And then take it from there. Then perhaps start to have some anecdotal conversations out in the business from a business partnering perspective um, and have and just have a few focus groups um, to just get the conversation going, going like what's working, what's not working well. I think what a lot of senior HR, including myself, I must say, when I did this project elsewhere, and when I led it quality diversity strategies, I would... I would perhaps be quite presumptive in, oh, okay, these are the issues without necessarily, um, and this is because the data is telling me this. Um, so for example, and I'll give you an example because I want to share my experiences. Uh, my last organization, it was like, well, we don't have a representation issue because 40% of the workforce are BAME. So we know we can attract people in, but what we need to do is do is look at how we make it more inclusive. And I don't know why I got to that without making, without giving the, the research the respect that it needed, because yes, we had nearly half of the workforce identify as people of colour, but they were all working in frontline roles. And actually in the care sector, there is a higher representation of that. So we're not necessarily um, doing anything extra to get 
to get a, a diverse workforce. And what we, what we were finding was as you were progressing through management ranks, um, you know, it, it would be progressively less the AME um, up to and including our exec team. So where it wasn't necessarily an inclusion issue because actually they wanted to come in and there's an, it was more a management and leadership development issue with the AME workforce. And I needed to do some further work on the data to understand that issue and then talk to people that had been through processes and they were like, well, I know I had the requisite skills and experience, but for whatever reason, Joe Bloggs was promoted over me and I'm not quite sure why I can't quite see that. Um, and then I did some digging around actually unconscious bias and how managers are treating recruitment by sitting in on interviews um, and seeing quite honestly that we did have a level of discrimination at senior management level about how we were making choices on people moving into management roles. And I couldn't have then developed approaches and solutions to address that without having to take those steps to understand the issue. Whereas from that initial set of data, I was like, oh, it's an inclusion issue. Um, and so that's a piece of advice that I would give in terms of how you would just need to really drill down on your data and really supplement your data, get a range of different sources. So don't just look at your stats and your annual survey. How many times have I been relied on? I know it was 2018. No, it was, oh God, it was 2019 last year. I'm losing track of the years. Um, and when I first got given this project, they were like, yeah, here's a staff survey from 2017. I was like, okay, well, that's two, A, that's two years out of date. Um, B, I'm not quite sure what you want me to do with this. So it, it's just making sure that your data is, is really tuned in, doing the work. If you don't have the data, go out and get it and speak to people as well as collecting uh, and, you know, more statistical and um, objective data. Subjective data is so rich. Um, if you get the right conversations going. Fantastic. Well, you've, you've given such a comprehensive overview there. I think it's almost worth rewinding this section for the last five minutes if you're listening to this and going through it all again and taking some notes. And I love the fact you've introduced some personal experiences into that as well. You, you, you've touched upon technology. And so I'm going to pause that there because I want to talk to you about technology in the second part of this podcast. I think you've talked about a little bit in terms of the data side of things. Before we get to that point, though, um, Rush, I'd love to find out a little bit more about you. Time to find out more about you. So just to take us off the EDNI narrative for a moment, how do you relax in your downtime? What, 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 <laughs> what motivates you outside of, uh, outside of HR? A range of things. I think mindfulness and well-being and mental health. I don't want to keep these buzzwords going in terms of how do I relax and unwind. I think I'm really passionate about HR and L&D professionals actually taking the time for them. And I'm a really big believer on that. So outside of work, I do like to focus on those things that matter to me. I love traveling, uh, probably a little bit too much. If you speak to my other half, who's always like, how have you budgeted for this? Like, you, A, you don't have the annual leave entitlement, <laughs> which is true. Um, and B, oh my God, we literally, you know, we need to save up. And I'm just blow. I literally do love, um, if I can book a holiday, I'm there. And seeing different parts of the world. Um, and just, yeah, getting out there, I think, outside of my own little bubble in London. So definitely traveling uh, energized me. I, I think it's really important to um, have a good support network. And I love spending time with my friends and my family. It's probably another cliche that a lot of people say, but I genuinely get a lot out of um, talking to people. Um, as you can probably tell from this podcast. Um, it's like the perfect medium for you, isn't yeah. it, podcasting? <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I'm like, right, I'm getting comfortable in my chair now. Like, hey. Um, but yeah, no, I do. I love Your fiance is going to owe me. You're going to go <laughs> yeah. home and you'll be completely silent. Yeah. Like, what happened? Be, what happened? He will. He will. He'll probably drop you a little thank you note. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's, you know, talking, socialising. Um, I love my long baths uh, and just chilling out. I love cooking um and and yeah for mindfulness I do actively I don't know if I was, I was getting it right when I first went on the mindfulness bandwagon um you know we, we know how and I've worked in mental health so for, you know the priory and, and various other mental health providers so um I had the had the opportunity to really pick therapists and psychotherapists brain okay how do you actually do it what what do you know how it, what is mindfulness but actually I'm really heavily massive fan of that which is just taking 10, 15 minutes to focus on what's around you and to let go of everything else that you're thinking through. And I do that religiously before I go to work and as soon as I get back home. Um, I mean, there's a there's a fear associated with that as well, isn't there? Everyone, you know, there, there's that fear that you have to sort of sit in the uh, in the lotus position. Yeah, no, sort of, no, no, no. You know, yeah, yeah. we don't quite understand what it is. And we, we know people get used to it. They, they, they adopt it. Absolutely. You have to make it work for you. Um and you're right you know you can do it on the, once you once you've tapped into that part of 
that your mind that puts you at ease and stops because for me it's about a million thoughts an hour that come through my head um whether it's my team or about things that i need to do at work or plans i have with my friends etc so for me that is so important on the go i'm literally walking to work and you just once you know how to access that part and just shut everything else out honestly it is the most it's, it's refreshing actually um, just as refreshing as a as a gin and tonic, which is something else that I quite like to do in my own time. Um, I've heard, I, I heard that one of the CIPD panels you arranged, you even had a gin station. <laughs> which which I, I actually blew the whole budget for the event on alcohol <laughs> um, and was reprimanded, rightly so, by the CIPD. They were like, uh, we're... <laughs> it's my kind of panel. Yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> so, who are the two people who have been most influential to you in your career? Oh, very good. Wow. Um, Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think so. One that particularly stands out in my head is a hospital director that I worked with at the start of my career, and she was, and I was, you know, sharing now. Um, I was quite enthusiastic, quite quite motivated. You know, I got into a senior HR role relatively young. Um, I was twenty two actually when I took up my HR first HRM role. Um, and 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 <laughs> that was a learning curve. And I was like, yeah, no, I got this. I got this. And I had the gift of the gab, as you can probably tell. Um, and I could say the right things in the right meetings and, and, and wow the right people and SMT loved me, et cetera. But what I really wasn't good at was the detail. Uh, and, you know, actually going away after a meeting, typing up notes, doing reports, you know, putting my statistics together. And it did land me in a bit of trouble with the, So this had been allowed to go on and they kind of, there was this, you know, no one had really checked me in because I would always get away with it in terms of, oh, no, it's fine. I can, you know, I can on the hoof I can say what I need to and I was you know I was at a, at a stage of my life as well you know I was quite I was quite young and I remember when she took over the hospital from the last hospital director and she um within the first month she said right I need this 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 and this and of course I didn't do any of it because I was I, you know for me I really enjoyed the speaking part of the job and not necessarily the doing in terms of the analysis and all that and she sat me down and she went right this is going to be painful wish but I'm now going to give you a crash course in how to have attention to detail um and you don't have that and it was the and it was the first honest conversation I think I've ever had in the workplace because until then I was you know I was like oh my god you're great you're this you're that and I had this really positive feedback and she was the first one to sit me down really neutral um really you know she did it well but she basically said address this and we painstakingly yeah out being the opposite word weekly would then sit and I hated it I absolutely hated it and she'd be like right I reviewed your report this is my feedback from your report and, da, 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 and she sat me down and she'd be like I'd like your thinking on this but have you thought about this da, 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 da. and that coaching I guess it was it was coaching wasn't it it was it was quite intense <clears throat> and it's it equipped me <laughs> with the skills that I think I still use to this day which is you know we are absolutely you know the profession of people is changing we are more you know in a space where we talk and culture and change. that's why I love HR and people because it's about people now right so but we still have a role in organisations to manage risk, uh, to provide, you know, administrative support and resources, to have an attention to detail when it comes to processing various pieces. And that, without developing that skill, I don't necessarily think I'll be able to line manage the teams that I do in the way that I do now, um, having understood the, the full range of services that we provide. So she definitely sticks out in my mind as someone who gave it to me like it was. She was so great because she didn't have a massive personality. She's quite introverted, actually. And I'm massively extroverted, as you can probably tell. Um, and it was great because she showed me a different side and a different approach to effectiveness in the world of work. Um, really opened my eyes to that. So, yeah, she's the one that I really carry with me, I think, in, in the lessons that she taught. Um, I think the, the other person in my career, um, I think there's so many inspiring people right now. I I must say one of the people that I have a huge amount of respect and admiration for is, is Charmaine D'Souza. I don't know if she's going to listen to this. She's the HR director of the Greater London Authority. Um, and I've had the privilege of meeting with her a few times um, and being offered some uh, mentoring as well through her, which I, I've yet to kind of start actually. But in terms of the work that she's done in GLA, the 
I think in terms of the mayor's uh, commitment to equality and diversity and seeing that in terms of TFL, the apprenticeship programs that have been brought in, the focus on disability in such a holistic way, you know, um, that the amount around the equality and diversity agenda, not only impacting the team, her team, and the work that they're doing with the DLA, which is a huge workforce, but then the knock on effect that's having on London and in the midst of Brexit and all of the feelings of perhaps being feeling unwelcome, et cetera, especially for our European, um, you know, people living and working in London. I, I, I'm really inspired by that, by, by the approach that they've taken. And it's really actually quite, you know, bold in the way that they've gone, nope, we are London and we believe in diversity. We believe in, you know, the people that live and work for us. And, you know, the work that I've seen Charmaine champion and do in the various committees and forums that I've seen her operate in, it's really inspiring, I think, and it shows me um, what good leadership can do um, in the sense of, of really moving this kind of agenda forward. Two excellent examples. Fantastic. So are there any resources that have really helped you on your journey? Um, networking as a resource is, is massive, I think, and it shouldn't be underestimated. I think if you can get along to any events, seminars, forums, there's loads of free ones because those people, you know, are, kind of doing this I think that's been a huge help and honestly in the equality diversity space that's probably been the most because some of these conversations are about people and about different experiences and because it's new to us in the sense that it's not an established part of business and we're like you know it's developing it is so helpful to hear about other people's experiences and how they've done it so I would absolutely recommend it as a resource go to an event, go to a seminar. I might plug the CIPD Central London here and say we've got a range of events coming up in the following year that are tailored around both the educational piece, because um, I'm really passionate about us educating ourselves on some of these issues, but also the networking and meeting different people and, and hearing about different ideas and thoughts. Um, so that's definitely a resource. That's, that's also how we how we met as well and how we how we got to this point. So it shows the power of networking. And there may or may not be a gin station. So well, it's, uh, I it's mean, worth it, it, <laughs> you know, if, if, if they if they refresh my budgets this year and they give me something decent, then, yeah, I will uh, commit to, uh, you know, an alcohol uh, as, as a treat there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. if you could invite three people to a dinner party, who would they be and why? Oh, God. <laughs> okay. Oh, God, this is probably really random. So I'd invite Rihanna because she's like my absolute goddess in life. For those of you, for those people that know me on a personal level, I have been a huge fan of her. She's the same age as me. I feel like I've grown up with her. I love her music. I love the fact that she's totally shaking things up in the world of equality and diversity. I mean, Fenty Beauty, that she's now catering for all skin tones. I mean, she just did it. Like, she just went, she just, she just like, nope. You know, people need to have a uh, foundation at every different type of skin tone possible. She just made it a success and it's massive. She's a huge businesswoman as well as, you know, a massive brand. I have such mad respect for her and love for her. I would love to have her around for dinner just to pick her brains and experiences. Um, the other person I probably want would be amazing is Indra Nui. Um, so I'm not sure if people know the name Indra Nui, but she was the CEO of PepsiCo for a number of years, I believe about 14 years, who pretty much doubled Pepsi's profits under her. She brought the new Pepsi Well Living range in. Um, she diversified Pepsi's portfolio. Um, and she started her life and her I guess her early start was in India where you know as a woman of color or as women in India anyway access to education was not easy um she was very lucky to have been brought up by family progressive progressive family members that really encouraged her both her and her sister to actually go to university she did that off her own back she then came to Harvard she got a scholarship to come into the USA she got obviously uh, management consultancy uh, qualifications through Harvard um, and then started working at Pepsi. She'd been in Pepsi for a long, long, long time and at, progressed her way through to a position of, you know, being a woman of colour on a FTSE 100 company. And this is talking 15 years ago, you know, uh, in terms of her achieving that. I would absolutely love to hear more about her journey and, the, you know, what, what insights or, I guess, um, some tips, you know, or, or sharing her thoughts on the future. Uh, and who was my final person? Hmm. Jeff Bezos. I'm, I'd probably be a bit scared, to be honest, of him. Um, 
apprehensive. Um, but the reason I've chosen Jeff Bezos is uh, I think I think Amazon is reaching a, 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 a point in time as an organization that is truly it's scary, but it's remarkable how they've grown from in his garage selling books um, to the massive worldwide conglomerate. I mean, I, I I know people are scared because, you know, Alexa's hearing, you know, Alexa's listening to everything we're saying now, apparently, and all this data has been collected. But for me, I'm thinking there is that, which is the ethics and data part of it, which is we, we Amazon's entire philosophy has been customers and actually we need to know everything about our customers so we can give them the best possible service and they really do now know pretty much everything if you think about what we use amazon for um so there's that i just want to be like okay you know how how do you unwind because he's like isn't he like the richest man in the world or the second richest man in the world um so i'd love to pick his brain that would be my uh three if that happened i'd probably like, have a heart <laughs> be a pretty powerful dinner so we've got rihanna indra nui and jeff bezos and i think indra was um my research here tells me that she was voted 13th most powerful woman on the Forbes list. So that gives you some ideas to, um, of, of, of all, of all female entrepreneurs. So yeah, so, so uh, I'll, what I'll do is I'll put, I'll put a link, I'll put a link in the episode notes to, um, to all three. So people who are interested in finding out more, um, people can click on those links and, um, and see why I've invited them. So fantastic guests at the dinner party. We're going to move back into the, uh, the deep detail of ED&I. Uh, we're going to go for a quick advert break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the technology that hopefully you think might be able to help with addressing ED&I issues. So stay with us. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Shaping the future of human resources together. Final questions. I would like to ask, Bush, how do you think technology can help us in addressing ED&I? Uh, a really good question. Uh, I think the question should be, what should you be mindful of if you are using technology to support ED&I? Because I think it can help. But actually, I was at the annual conference and exhibition at, for the CIPD last year where we had some really inspiring discussions. And it was touched upon around actually what are the not the drawbacks, but I guess some of the risks that we're also seeing when it comes to AI and technology and um, EDNI, because you can map racial profiling uh, now, which is an interesting, very ethical area of, of debate, um, which is which is really yeah, which can it depends how it's being utilised. Um, but I think in the in the in the I guess if you look at it from my perspective in the world of work and organizationally, I guess what I'm seeing, um, there are some huge benefits to to using technology. I mean, I know probably may have heard of this, but removing unconscious bias uh, is probably you know one area in particular that can a, a recruitment platform is, is can can help with. So we had we had Deviani on our panel um, at the event, didn't we? And uh, we had the various discussions at this at my last event for Equality and Diversity on how uh, you can remove that level of screening so that there is, a, I guess, a level of impartiality, um, and that will potentially combat um, your 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 managers in the sense that if there is shortlisting practices that are discriminatory, it removes that. So what you can technology is a great way to enable a broader talent pool to enter your organization. But actually, for me, the other areas of, of technology, I think, is measuring data and using that data to inform a picture of where your organization's at. Because even if you remove as many barriers through technology, which, by the way, you can absolutely do through effective learning management systems, applicant tracking systems, uh, HRISs, you can do that. But if you still have a bad manager sitting behind the technology uh, or you know bad practices happening, 
it, 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 that's not effectively going to support your organisations in, in moving forward. So it is a two-pronged attack, I think. I love that response. That What you've just said there tackles actually a lot more issues outside of EDNI. When we talk about the tech you know, the tech fear of people bringing in AI and robotics and are they going to outsource my job and is it going to make an effect? As you say, it's only going to be as strong as the people managing it and the people looking after it properly. And if we become over-reliant on technology doing everything for us, then we're going to be in a real uh, sticky mess, I think, in the longer term. So I think, um, you know, that's that's across the board. But I just thought I'd interject. I really love that response. And that's something I'm passionate about. And I agree. I totally, totally agree with you, Nick. I could not agree more. I think you're right. It does straddle so much more than EDI. It's culture. It's people's. You know, the whole process. You bring technology in. Um, if you're operating it with people that, um, you know, with the with the wrong people, for being a frank, um, it's it's never going to give you the desired effect. Um, and you you are right. It covers a lot broader area in terms of talent, leadership. Um various other pieces i think i think where i've seen technology in ed and i work really well is measuring um so engagement so one of the things that we talk about in the world of equality and diversity is is tribes and communities and bringing communities together because we are moving well i'm certainly a, a huge advocate and champion of um using uh technology to bring cultures together so i work for example i work in uh, an organization that has uh, hundred, about 30 or 40 different sites and services located across the country. How do you bring people together in that, in the sense that they feel part of one organization? And technology is a great way to enable that. But by default, you're also then uh, furthering your EDI agenda in the sense that if you see other people from different backgrounds and different experiences and are able to connect to other parts of your organization outside of what you could traditionally do because you know you work in say potentially a non-diverse team or you're not, you're not exposed to different people technology is a great way to bring people and bring experiences together so a few platforms that i've used um I think totem being one of them which is a great platform um workplace which is an app by facebook um for work and that and that's great because you you, you kind of have the the gamification element there and it's drawing on things that people are familiar with in the, in their own outside of work in terms of liking and sharing etc so i think there's a, a massive benefits on the cultural piece um on the edni front um there's a there's obviously a mass there's obviously platforms that you can get recruitment wise that removes your own can remove your unconscious bias but again like we've talked about i think that needs to be supplemented with training to hiring managers on on how to shortlist and how to use the systems um yeah those are, and then i think there's a whole data and ethical piece there as well which is you can collect data as long as you understand what you're using it for and how you're using it um those are you know engagement measuring apps pulse surveys finger like you know when now we see it so much don't we where we go to shops or like, you know, Amazon or Uber, you know, this is all on that instant feedback principle. So you can say, how was my service today? Or how um, rate your driver four stars out of five stars. Bringing some of that in to measure your engagement and your workforce um, is a great way of also identifying particular issues around equality, diversity and inclusion. So I think I think some of those ideas potentially could help enable it. But, you know, I've seen it where you go, don't don't jump straight to the technology without addressing the people that work for you in the first instance, I think. Yeah, it make, makes total sense, makes total sense. So just taking it forward, in your view, what, what do you think, we've talked a lot about what people can do and, and some strategies for, for improving um, EDI and within, within, within the workplace. What are the common pitfalls that you're seeing organisations fall into when it comes to EDI? and mm. uh, So, okay. Yeah, this is a good question. Um, again, some of these vary much so depending on how much buy-in you've got. But the first part is groupthink. I think first area I've definitely seen happen is, is groupthink. By groupthink, I mean, yes, we want to do some work on equality, diversity and inclusion. Yes, we want to make our business or make our organisation a better place to work. But the people that are getting together to make those decisions aren't necessarily diverse. Um, so I would say always try and get a group of people from different, it doesn't need to be diversity in the sense that different departments, different different areas of the organisation, different backgrounds, different views, get a diverse group, pardon, pardon together um, to address your, your ED&I 
strategy. I think that's the first pitfall I think I see is right decisions, wrong people, probably how I would call it, um, or, or right thinking, wrong people. Um, and I think the other area is... And that includes, that, that includes age as well, doesn't it? We absolutely. haven't really touched upon age. Yeah, yeah, again, yeah. you talk about diverse points of views. Um, again, it's, it's all ages as, as well as, you know, people can have different experiences and different different ways of thinking to bring that to the table. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you're right, age is definitely an area that, you know, we not overlook, but it's definitely an area of diversity. You want to bring in different people from you know different uh, uh yeah from getting a, a broad range of people um is, is really key um what i think i think the other rest i, I know we talked about this touch earlier but do not try and create a, a strategy that you've seen on linkedin or um that you've heard someone talk about their their 18 step plan in, in a, a conference etc it's really easy not to to pinch people's work but we always like the comfort blanket of seeing something tried and tested and know that it can result produce the right results there's nothing wrong with that but i think there is something there's, like there's nothing wrong with actually that but what what is um edi is the one area i think or one space that you will not get a realization of benefits from following um a policy or a strategy or a work plan from other places and that's because every single organization is different um so I, another pitfall i've seen is we're like oh yeah we, we're gonna be, we're gonna we're gonna do a huge piece of nudie and i we're gonna get a bame forum set up an lgbt forum we're gonna go down to pride we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna post we're gonna put posters all over the walls make it meaningful uh and make it relevant to your organization i think that's another huge I think takeaway in the sense that everyone will have a different, uh, every organization will have a different need when it comes to addressing EDI. So get take the time and the data to think through what that need is. I think the final area I would like to say is um, on on the pitfalls is we, <laughs> I I really I laugh when I hear people go, oh, you mean the nice fluffy EDI stuff? Mm, no, like there's nothing nice and fluffy about this subject matter and actually what i've seen with people in organizations is it's seen as a nice to have or an add-on and not a core part of your business strategy the only way you are going to get um the, the buy-in the influence people to sit up and pay attention is if you are linking your or weaving your edni strategy through your business goals so if you have a business goal of being 90% of your services to be delivered digitally in the next year, how can ED and I, what we can see is actually with that, our IT department um, is not representative of the customers that we support. So they're not understanding this. So diversification of your IT department. So start to make meaningful actions to address your ED and I plan through linking it to your business goals. And that will get the attention of your executive team. It'll get the attention of your CEO and it will get the attention of the people that work for you. Um, yeah, I think those are the key pitfalls that I've definitely had to navigate through in in in, pre, in yeah in recent years. No, you've you've articulated those those brilliant. And for those that listened to my podcast in the past or listened to me talk with uh, with Margaret in the previous podcast, you'll know that. And I don't mean to kill Billy, but mention this again. But you know, I'm passionate about this from a recruitment perspective. Stop looking for things that are a culture fit in inverted commas. We're looking for people that are going to evolve your culture. There's all the evidence is out there to suggest that diversity leads to better profits, to you know stronger practices. So let's look at evolving your culture when you're recruiting and stop using you know the wrong culture fit as a reason for not taking you know a more diverse workforce into your organisation. So I'm really really passionate about that. We need to take that out of the uh, vocabulary of a recruitment practice. That culture fit is old. It's antiquated we should be evolving cultures and I think if we if we do that as a collective and use that alongside the three great points you've just raised then we're going to be in a much better position going forward and businesses are going to be much better for it because as you say all the evidence is there to suggest that diversity leads to better profits better performance you know it takes two seconds to do some some, some research into this area and you'll see the results speak for themselves so um yeah, and you've given some 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 great examples of pitfalls for people to uh, to avoid, which I think is which is fantastic. I love that, Nick. Culture culture evolves. Yeah, no, that's a good, really good way of looking at it. Absolutely, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's something I'm quite passionate about. So you'll see me suddenly come to life with that kind of area. But I'm I'm trying to educate every client I speak to when they say they've got to be the right culture, and I'll say to them, "What does that really mean?" 
you know, this is your opportunity to not replace the person you've lost with a like-for-like -like individual. This is your opportunity to pick someone that gives all the, the, the skills and experiences that you didn't have in the person you've just lost. So let's rethink it. So this almost brings us to the end of the podcast, which I'm ashamed to say because you've got so much passion for it and I could listen to you all day. But I'm gonna, I would like to ask you... <laughs> If you could You're give... one of few that could listen to oh, I don't day, believe maybe. that's true. <laughs> so for those that, that are listening to this right now and they're really passionate, they're, they're, they're passionate about making a difference, they're passionate about doing something different, that they've listened to all the advice you've given, what's the one thing they could immediately walk away from this podcast with and say, okay, I've listened and I'm immediately going to make this change in my business? So it might be an HR professional, it might be a business owner. But is there an implementable action that someone can immediately walk away from this podcast right now and go, right, let's change this? And if there is, what would that be? Try and have one conversation with one person in your organisation to talk openly, honestly, frankly about what are the ED&I issues that we are facing in the business? And if you can try and have that conversation with someone, it doesn't need to be an exec. It doesn't need to be a director. It doesn't need to be... It doesn't need to be someone you work with every single day. It could be someone that you don't have that, someone who is different to you. And I'll leave it with people to, you know, interpret that as they will. Someone that you may not naturally gravitate to both personally or professionally and have an honest conversation about the experiences and challenges. Not only is that an educational piece on different perspectives and different you know, different different ideas, that will give you an idea of where to take the conversation next. And that for me, in honestly, for three of the success, and I'm really proud of the strategies I've implemented over the last five years um, in various places, has, has been my, my kind of my golden ticket every single time, because that has set me on the path to then having those, you know, progressing that conversation through. So if you can do that, I'd have a, highly recommend that you do. Fantastic. And as you've mentioned as well, to summarize some of the other points you've talked about in this podcast, you can then, you know, when you start having those conversations, you can start analyzing that data to build compelling cases for addressing EDI issues. You can look at some of the ER cases which are sensed on discrimination and look at the feedback that staff surveys are telling you about DNI to make some changes. You can link that to your corporate strategy and you can really use that to drive evidence-based and meaningful conversations. So um what a pleasure to have you on board today. I hope you've enjoyed your first podcast. I've loved every moment of it. I'm so super thankful for you having me on, Nick. Um, really enjoyed it. It's been a great conversation. I've, I've enjoyed every second. I know you've mentioned a couple of times you're a really keen networker. So if I may, I would love to put your LinkedIn uh, profile in the episode notes. So if people are interested in connecting with you online, they can do so just by clicking the episode notes and finding your profile to go straight through to yourself. Are there any other uh, places people can find you online that you're happy for them to, to locate you? Useful links, keeping the HR L&D community connected. I'm really active on LinkedIn. So um, yeah, please do add the details, Nick, um, which I'm sure you and if anyone does want to reach out please drop me a message i'm really responsive um, and always happy to to share um what's worked for me and, and have that conversation so please do reach out absolutely fantastic and of course if you are an hr or l and or l d professional listening to this podcast and you have an hr his or l d related vacancy and you want some specialist hr recruitment support please do get in touch with me i would love to help you i'd love to show you what a good hr or a great hr experience can feel like when it comes to recruitment you can reach out to me directly at nick at jgarecruitment.com or give me a call 01727 800 377 otherwise as always thanks for listening i look forward to bringing you all the next episode of the HRND podcast real soon and thank you ever so much Rush Raza for joining me today on what has been a fantastic episode thanks a lot thank you thank you so much for tuning into the HR L&D podcast with your host Nick Day of JGA HR Recruitment if you need help with a current HR or L&D vacancy then please get in touch with Nick and his team all contact details can be found in the episode notes in the meantime to make sure you never miss an episode please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels till next time